Hello and welcome back to EdChoice Chats. I'm your host, Jason Bedrick, Director of Policy at EdChoice, and this is another edition of our Big Ideas series. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Lance Azumi, the Senior Director of the Center for Education at the Pacific Research Institute. He is the author of a recent book titled Choosing Diversity, How Charter Schools Promote Diverse Learning Models and Meet the Diverse Needs of Parents and Children, which is the subject of today's conversation. Lance, welcome to the podcast. Jason, it's great to be with you. Great to see you after so much time. Yes, likewise. So look, your book deals with charter schools, and there are just tons of misconceptions about charter schools. The misconception that they're private schools, that they charge tuition, that they're religious schools, none of which is true. So before we dive in, maybe you could just quickly define what a charter school is. That is an important thing because uh, many people uh, still, even after so many years of their existence, don't really know what a charter school is. Charter school is a publicly funded school, so it is a public school, but it's independent of the school district in which it is located. And so it's uh, usually managed by its own board, and it has greater flexibility to be innovative. But in exchange for this flexibility, they have greater accountability because they, their charter uh, has to be renewed every so many years, and therefore they have to show some types of results in order for that charter to be renewed, unlike most regular public schools, which go on forever and ever, despite whatever results they're producing. And these charter schools, of course, the way they produce high results is because they cherry pick their students, right? They have very high admission standards. Is that correct? <laughs> well, that's certainly what the opponents of charter schools have been saying for years and years and years that, uh, you know, whatever good results that uh, studies have shown that charter schools are producing are because, well, they're creaming the crop. But as I point out in my book that you mentioned, Choosing Diversity, many of these schools, these charter schools are actually catering and servicing the students who are actually at the very bottom of the education and academic scale, and often students that the regular public schools are not able to educate. And so therefore the charter schools are often the last stop of last resort for these students before they exit the system and never get an education. Right, and of course, uh, you know, the charters are subject to an open enrollment requirement. And if there's over uh, subscription, then they have to run a lottery. They can't pick and choose who shows up. But one major misconception is that charters are, are basically all alike. And so when people hear charter schools, even those that are, are more informed and, and might know that, okay, these are not private schools and they're not religious schools, think, okay, they all look like KIPP, the Knowledge is Power program, or they, they all look like Uncommon Academies, right? They are all urban schools that have a no excuses model, you know, really focused on test scores. And your book tries to explode that myth. So. Could you tell us then a little bit about the diversity across charters? And, and let's say, are charters more diverse than public schools, than traditional public schools? No, I think that's a very important point, Jason, because I think that when, and as you point out, even people who are knowledgeable about education do make the assumption that charter schools are very similar to each other. And that's why, you know, I have often said that that is not true. And that's why I've often said that even when you see research that compares regular public schools to charter schools, let's say based upon you know, various academic achievement indicators, what you're assuming then is that all regular public schools are basically alike, which is actually true, but also you're assuming that as an aggregate, all these charter schools are basically alike, and that is not true. And so what I have tried to do in this book, Choosing Diversity, is to show that 
the charter school sector is very different, not just from the regular public schools, but also very different from each other. So one charter school can be very different from the next charter school, even though they may be right next to each other. And so, uh, as you point out, these charter schools are not all like KIPP or some of these more well-known charter school networks, which people may be familiar with, that operate on a particular model. What I tried to do in this book, Choosing Diversity, is to show that, hey, you know, look at all these different types of charter schools that are out there. There are charter schools that cater to kids with special needs. There are charters that offer a classical education model. There are charter schools that are in rural areas. There are charter schools that, uh, that specialize in using high-tech tools to educate their uh, students. So it's a very broad and diverse group of schools out there. And you know, I think that uh, I've tried to give the reader a flavor of that diversity so that when they read newspaper articles, for example, about charter schools, you know, one of the things I hope they will say is that, but what kind of charter schools are we talking about? That, that's a fantastic point. It's, it's sort of like researchers that are studying charter schools would be like uh, a nutritionist who's trying to study whether or not going on a diet works. And so they've got one group of people that didn't go on a diet and then one group that went on a diet. Well, there's the Atkins diet, there's the Mediterranean diet, or there's, there's a thousand different types of diets out there. So you can't, you can't look at going on a diet in the aggregate, right? You, got, you have to separate that out. You have to disaggregate it. So one question for you before we dive into the book, how do you think researchers could do a better job of actually studying different types of charter schools? How would you break it down so that we get a more accurate assessment of what these charters are doing? Well, I think that, uh, and I haven't you know, made my hard and fast categories, but I do think that I chose the different charter schools that I profile in my book because I think they represent kind of broad categories. You know, you have, you know, your typical urban schools. I have uh, some examples of those. I have an example of an incredible rural charter school, you know, schools that use these high-tech or online educational software tools and specialize in that. Charter schools that specialize in the arts, the performing and fine arts, for example, or charter schools that look at special needs kids, whether they be homeless kids or whether they be kids on like, let's say the autism spectrum. And so I think that, you know, when researchers are looking at the performance of charter schools, they really need to kind of dive down to a little bit more of a micro level to see what are these schools doing? What kinds of methodologies are they using? They have many of these schools have diametrically opposed philosophies about how they're teaching their kids. So in my book, I have, you know, schools that are focused on using a project based learning model you know, where the kids are basically kind of constructing their own solutions to problems. And then on the other hand, I have charter schools that explicitly say that they will never use a project-based learning model and that, you know, that they are very focused on a direct instruction, teacher-centered type of model. And so to be able to try and compare or like to group those schools into one bundle doesn't make any sense. And I think that we need to evaluate these schools a lot of it based upon the type of pedagogy they may be using, the type of learning models they may be using, and also who they're catering to. Who are, who's the audience? Who, who are the customers that are going to these schools? Well, one of the audiences that you mentioned was uh, students with special needs. And you noted that these are not just students with uh, particular disabilities. 
but also sometimes that have other types of special needs. They might be from you know homeless background. They may have you know anger management issues. And your book highlights one school in particular, Life Learning Academy. Uh, and I should note also that the the Pacific Research Institute produced an excellent video, which you star in toward the end, about this. I was listening to it over lunch. My, I, I noticed my wife was on the other side of the table doing her own thing. And I looked up and I saw she actually, her eyes had gotten teary. And I thought it was because of what she was doing. But no, she said she was, she was eavesdropping on the video. So she was very moved by it. I was very moved as well. Could you tell us a little bit about Life Learning Academy and what they've been able to accomplish? Well, you know, I lead off my book, Choosing Diversity, with Life Learning Academy because it is like a really amazing school and it busts, again, a whole bunch of myths. Life Learning Academy is based in San Francisco, but it's actually based on the little island of Treasure Island. So if any of your listeners have ever been to the San Francisco Bay Area and have ever driven over the San Francisco Bay Bridge, they'll know that the Bay Bridge is actually broken into two bridges and the center part of it is actually Treasure Island. And Treasure Island it used to be a uh, former military base and it's now being redeveloped, but uh, you know it's largely abandoned though still right now. And Life Learning Academy is located on this little island in San Francisco Bay, mainly because it is neutral gang territory. No gang in the San Francisco area claims that as its turf because no one's there. And so uh, they were able to put this charter school on this neutral gang territory and it caters to the most difficult to educate demographics in the San Francisco area. You're talking about kids who have dropped out. You're talking about kids who have an extensive juvenile criminal history, kids who have very broken families, kids who are homeless and homeless meaning uh, whether they are couch surfing from couch to couch at friends' places to living under bridges. So we're talking about very difficult to educate kids, kids who have found that oftentimes that the regular public school system is not giving them what they need in order to learn. And this school was established in order to provide that last lifesaver to them educational lifesaver. And one of the innovative things that this school has done, because it focuses a lot on homeless kids, and because San Francisco has a large homeless population, as I believe most of your listeners probably know, they have actually become the first public school, publicly funded school in in the state to actually build a dormitory facilities for their homeless kids on the campus. So they actually have a place to sleep at night before they go to school. Yeah, and in the video you point out too that not only not only do they build the dorm, they are actually teaching the students how to live independently, teaching them how to cook and how to take care of a property. They're also doing things like gardening. It's a lot of project-based learning, and at least the kids that were interviewed on the video were speaking about it in glowing terms. How it really they were in some very dark places, and that this has, uh, in some cases, literally been a lifesaver for them. That's absolutely right. I mean, it has been a literal lifesaver for them. Uh, I interviewed a young man named Alan Pickens for my book, and he had been a student at Life Learning Academy. He was a very angry young man. And because of that anger, he had adopted very unhealthy habits. So, you know, as a high schooler, his weight had ballooned up to 330 pounds because you know, he used food as a way to deal with his anger. And uh, he dropped out of school and eventually found his way to Life Learning Academy, which was his last hope. And uh, you know, it taught him not only 
you know, academic skills, but life coping skills. And so he was able to basically turn around the way he thought about himself and his life and how he interacted with other people. And it was a, a bit of a tough love type of routine that they drilled into him that he couldn't blame other people. He needed to take some self-responsibility, self-accountability for you know, the situation that he was in. And you know, it was for him actually very revealing because for one of the first times it really was somebody came up to him and basically shook him by the lapels and said that you need to try and improve your own life and focus on that as opposed to blaming other people for where you are. And so it totally changed his life. You mentioned the film that we produced. There's a, a young man named Carlos in there. And he went through the similar type of uh, experience where he was involved in gangs and had a crime history. And yet he was able to go to Life Learning Academy, again, totally turn his life around. And at the end of the film, he says that the school literally saved his life. And so, you know, the school provides these students again, not only with life coping skills and academics, but they also provide them with work training experiences. So they have agreements with various uh, museums, corporations, nonprofits around the Bay Area to give these uh, kids internships and work experience so that they understand that there is life outside of their very narrow family backgrounds and that they can succeed and there is a brighter future for them. So in addition to various needs, you also have various interests and, and aptitudes, and charters try to appeal to those. One type are these uh, STEM schools or, you know, science, technology, engineering, and math schools, or sometimes they're called high-tech highs. Could you tell us what these schools are and how they differ from a traditional public school? Well, you know, I think that, uh, that there's several different types that I profile in uh, my book. I mean, one type is very focused actually on using the new wave of online educational software programs in order to be used as tools for their students. And so there's a school called Design Tech, which is in the San Francisco Bay Area. And it's actually located on the campus of the high-tech corporation, Oracle. And uh, the Oracle employees actually will teach the kids at certain points during the year in certain classes. And because they're located on the Oracle campus, these kids have the opportunity to then, you know, visit, you know, different parts of the company to see, uh, you know, how STEM really works in, in real life. That school uses uh, uh, online technology to do what they call design thinking. So design thinking at Design Tech is about finding a problem and then figuring out what you believe is a solution, but then also then having empathy for your audience, the people who would then be the recipients of your so-called solution, and then adjusting that to their needs. And so that at the end of the day, that you have a design that not only solves a problem, but actually meets the needs of the consumer. And so you know, in order to do things like that, they'll use educational software. Like for example, if you're going to build a building for a purpose for the community, they will use a online software that will allow students to construct a building. But in order to do that, they need to be able to understand geometry, be able to do geometry, be able to do the mathematical calculations in order to actually build this building for the community, which fills some sort of need in the community. So it both teaches their kids a kind of social entrepreneurship, but also teaches them those basic subjects that they need to learn in STEM. 
And you also profile schools that are doing something that's, you know, very, very different. Instead of, you know, with a focus on, on high tech and the newest and the latest and the greatest, you've got some schools that take a more classical approach that are focused on the greatest that has ever been thought and said. So could you give us a, a taste of what a classical charter might look like? Yeah, classical charter, you know, again, is a very interesting creature. Uh, one of my favorite charter schools not just for this book, but actually one of my favorite charters I've ever visited is actually a classical charter called John Adams Academy. And it's located in suburban Sacramento in Northern California and uh, has three campuses. But what they do is that, you know, they are based on a learning program that looks at America's national heritage. It focuses on primary documents of Western civilization, the great classics of Western civilization, whether that be Rousseau's social contract, Dante's Inferno. They don't use textbooks. They use the great works and they use the primary documents. So they will actually, you know, study the founding documents of the country. And they'll have courses such as Latin and Greek that are, uh, are required. But I think what's important for your listeners to understand is that this is not just some very dusty, you know, 17th century version of education. This is a, actually a, a very modern interactive type of education. So while on the one hand, you are studying the great works of Western civilization, the methodology that the teachers use in order to discuss these works is not just a, uh, you know, a, a professor at the front of the class just giving a lecture. The teacher uses a Socratic method where the teacher and the students get involved in very deep discussions about these great works. So the kids aren't just memorizing what's in the first and second amendments of the constitution. They're, they're discussing it in a very deep way. When I visited John Adams Academy, the very first time I visited them, I went into an ancient history class where the teacher and the student were having a very deep discussion about what the duties and uh, what the powers of the Greek god Apollo were. And it turned out that in that discussion, uh, and this blew me away, the student actually had some deeper insights into Apollo than the teacher. And the teacher admitted uh, that, well, you know something? I had really never thought of that before. And you're right. So I think that that's uh, important for people to understand that, uh, you know, when we talk about classical education, we're talking about uh, not just the material that kids are learning, but also that classical education schools are trying to instill a type of critical thinking in their students that make them not only understand, but work with and use those classical materials in their lives, and especially in leadership roles, which the school promotes. Now, people listening might be thinking, okay, well, this, this all sounds, sounds well and good. It would be great to have a wide variety of different types of charters. I can go over to this high-tech one. I can go over to this classical one and everything in between. But that works in an urban area where there's lots of people. And for rural areas, this is just not going to work. They're so small. Really, you can only, you know, economies of scale means you really can only have one school. So charters really are not for rural areas. Uh, but you actually profile some rural charter schools in your book. How does that work in rural areas? Well, I, I thought it was very important to profile a rural charter because, um, I mean, again, you know, the stereotype of charter schools is that they are mostly urban areas limited to the major cities in the country. And that's not true. So I profiled 
rural charter school called Grimway Academy, which is located in, uh, in the little town of Shafter, which is, I'm, I'm telling you, if you're on Highway 99 down in California, if you blink, you've passed it. And so, and it's located basically in orchards. And so the school is on eight acres of rural land there. And, you know, it focuses on a STEM curriculum. It has a uh, student body that is heavily immigrant. So 90% of the kids there are from Hispanic backgrounds. And, um, you know, many of them are English language learners. So they're not really fluent in English. And so uh, I think what's important for, you know, listeners to understand that is that Whereas charters are, again, often given the false label of being schools that only appeal to high achievers, for example, and those from high demographic income groups, that this isn't the case. And you have to just look at a school like Grimway Academy and the type of students it's schooling and to understand that that's not true. And these students, are, it's really amazing to see them because the school uses as a, a lot of online educational software in online learning labs that are very specific to the student that um, allow the school to catch the learning problems of these kids as they're happening in real time and, and to address them immediately. And so they're able to then pull kids out to get them remediated on the spot. Kids are, all, are grouped often in uh, based not on their chronological age, but based upon their learning level at the time. So you might have second, third, and fourth graders grouped into a group because they're learning at that same level and the school can help them better uh, advance because they're at that same level as opposed to simply grouping them in chronological age. The school it's also focuses a lot on their, uh, because they're in a rural area and they have a lot of land on their gardening program, which is really a signature program for them. And they grow foods that they use for their cafeteria. So all the students will eat all of the different types of fruits and vegetables that they themselves grow on the campus for lunch. And it's uh, you know really fantastic. And, it's, and you talk to the students and you, they'll say that the gardening program is one of the reasons why they love the school. So in other words, because charters are given greater freedom and, and autonomy, they're able to better meet the needs of local communities, whether that's a rural community that wants to have their kids spending some time out in the local orchards growing things, or it's just, you know, a charter anywhere that says, you know what, we're not going to follow these state seat time requirements. We are actually going to move our kids based on their mastery of a certain subject. So, you know, we may group them not according to age, but according to their level of ability at, at any given moment. So because these charter schools are, are doing so many different things, right? And you said it's, you know, you can't, you can't clump them all together because they look very different. A, a classical charter and a high-tech school and a Montessori, they all look very different. They've got different goals. They attract different types of families and different types of students with different needs or aptitudes or interests. So how do we judge success? I think, you know, uh, we judge success by trying to look at what I would say would be market indicators. Like, so for example, one of the things I tried to do for a lot of these schools in my book is to ask the people who run them, is like, give me your data on parental satisfaction. You know, so regardless of the type of pedagogy and learning model that you're using, you know, how are the parents viewing your school? And, you know, in most of the cases, well, all the cases where there was actual data, 
there was overwhelming support by parents and satisfaction by parents for the school. And so I think that's really important because parents wouldn't keep their kid in a school that you know, they felt was not meeting their needs. And I think that one of the things that I found, you know, like in that uh, rural charter school, Grimway Academy, for example, and this is the kind of thing that won't show up in necessarily in a university study, but the reason why a lot of those kids, when I interviewed them at that school, uh, said that they loved being at Grimway Academy was because, not necessarily because they were acing it on the state test, but because they felt the school kept them safe. Because in their previous schools that they had attended in the regular public system, they felt unsafe. One fourth grader told me that at his previous elementary school, somebody, an adult had tried to break into the school and had actually been shot by the police in an altercation. And that made him extremely nervous. And he, he couldn't learn because he felt so much anxiety from th that type of incident. And so when I interviewed him, he told me about how safe it was at Grimway Academy and that you know, he, he actually listed all the different safety features the school employed, uh, how many gates were locked, how many gates they had, you know, when were the monitors there to ensure that no one who shouldn't be there was on campus. You know, so I think that those are the kinds of things that you know, researchers need to try and find. While test scores are important, and I've used test scores in my you know, research in the past, but I think that we have to get at some of these non-test score based factors in order to understand why parents really support these charter schools. I think that's an excellent point, and it's a point you make a few times in the book. In the research community, we like to use test scores because we think of them as, as objective, but they are not the main objective that parents are looking at. Test scores are an important element, but if you have a choice between a school with high test scores, but your kid feels unsafe, uh, or a school that makes sure that your kids are safe, even if the test scores aren't as good, although I would say that those two are usually somewhat correlated. Families want safety first. After safety's out of the way, then they want a whole bunch of other things. Test scores is one of them, but there's a whole lot more that goes into an education than just the test scores. You noted too that different states have very different charter school policies. So, you know, take Arizona where you've got like 20% of the students in the state are in a charter school. They have a very diverse charter sector. Then you've got Kentucky which has a charter school law that has failed to produce even a single charter school. So what can policymakers do to encourage a more robust and diverse charter sector? Well, you know, I think that a number of different charter school organizations like the National Public Charter Authorizer Association, our, our friend Nina Reese, who runs that organization, they've put out a model charter school law it has like all kinds of different provisions in it, ones that I know that you and I would uh, agree with, you know, that there shouldn't be caps on the numbers of charters and that there should be uh, appeal rights, you know, uh, when local school boards turn down your charter, all these sorts of different provisions and to make a strong charter law. Because you're right, uh, Jason, that uh, whereas in a state like California, which has a thousand or more, 1200 charter schools, You'll have other states, which, like for example, with West Virginia, which you know has just just approved a charter school law, which it only has a very small handful of, of charter schools, and so the charters are not evenly distributed across the United States. And uh, I think that what's important is that for parents and the public to understand is that uh, there are 
areas and states that have good charter laws. You, you mentioned Arizona, it's certainly a, a, a really great state, not just for charters, but for school choice in general, uh, that we need to look at those states as models, policymaking in each and every other state. I mean, even though California has a lot of charter schools, we're actually regressing in terms of the restrictions that the state is imposing on charter schools. And so we actually should be looking more towards Arizona and less at uh, some of these other states that have had bad charters uh, for many years. Our guest today has been Dr. Lance Azumi, the Senior Director of the Center for Education at the Pacific Research Institute. He's the author of Choosing Diversity, How Charter Schools Promote Diverse Learning Models and Meet the Diverse Needs of Parents and Children. Lance, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Jason. I really appreciate it. And congratulations to all the people at EdChoice who do such terrific work. I've used your research and all your materials for many years, and uh, you know it's a great organization. This has been another edition of EdChoice Chats. If you have any ideas for authors you'd like us to interview for the Big Idea series, please send them to media at edchoice.org and be sure to subscribe to our podcast. Follow us on social media at EdChoice, and don't forget to sign up for our emails on our website, edchoice.org. Thank you. We'll catch you next time. Thank <laughs> you.